Well, what a week, eh? We're, uh, we're grieving and we're celebrating. Zoe Joy is an amazing woman. You know, I notice I say is because I really believe that she's still alive. She lives, as Jesus said, those who believe in me live even though they die. So I can't say she was an amazing woman because she still is an amazing woman. And um, those of us who had the privilege of knowing her, um, she was just, just a phenomenal, uh, incredible. I think there's a photo of her up here. So, I mean, that's a, that is a classic Zoe face right there. So full of zany joy and humor and life. Uh, any given circumstance, you would find her laughing about some crazy thing and then find yourself caught up with it. That was the funny thing about it. She had this just infectious sense of joy uh, and, and humor. Um, phenomenal worship leader. We were telling stories um, this week, though, something I learned, which I didn't know, uh, in our staff meeting, one of the facilities guys was saying he would get here very early to lock up, to open up, often 7.30 in the morning or so, and he would often find Zoe was, was here, here waiting or was already here, and because uh, she, she loved, before she began her work, she loved to just worship Jesus. I love that. I didn't know that, but I love that fact that she not only led us from the front, but she lived it from her heart. She was a worshipper before she was a worship leader. And uh, I just, that really struck me. I didn't, I love, I love learning that about her. I never knew that. Um, passionate about the poor. M many of us know she went to Zambia for uh, 18 months, a couple of years, I think it was. And before she went, she literally sold everything. Everything, down to every ornament, her car, everything. She literally took, I think, one or two bags with her. And so there are our memories of Zoe scattered around the church because we all bought her stuff to support her on her journey. And so um, that, that radical love for the poor, she went to, she served the poor here, but also, you know, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> she loved the poor here and she loved the poor overseas and she really gave her life uh, to that. And... Uh, you know, I think the, the other thing that was about her, for those of you who didn't know, was she was phenomenal at just kind of building community and being in community and family. And she really, that's one of our values, and she really modeled that. So Caroline told, tells a story, my wife tells a story of when Zoe, um, uh, when Caroline first came to the UK, she worked in the night shelter with Zoe. So Caroline was the manager, and Zoe was the assistant manager. And then one weekend, uh, Zoe said, why don't you just come back to Norfolk, where I'm from with me? Just come back and see where I'm from. And so they went back there. I think she's from a, a village or a town there. Anyway, one night they went into the local pub, and um, Caroline says, you could tell, you know when you approach a pub and it's just like rammed, and it's just rammed with people, you could tell as you walked up, it's kind of rammed with people. So they walk through the door of the pub, and it is absolutely packed out with people from the village. And literally, as they walk through, through the door, everyone stops, silence, turns towards them to look to see who's coming to the door, and then breaks out into spontaneous applause as they see Zoe. They greet their homecoming hero. And Caroline said even Zoe was a bit shocked, but she said she was shocked. She'd never seen anything like it, someone who had such an impact on a community that when, they, when she comes home, they greet her with a spontaneous applause. I thought, do you know what? That sums up something about her. Everyone who knew her uh, loved her. She lived well. Um, she died well. She was such. She is such an amazing woman. And um, I just want to talk about it for a few moments because it's right that we grieve, but it's also right that we learn, that we draw from this moment and hear what God is saying to us uh, through it. You know, um, I, I entitled this this message "When the Storm Hits: Persevering Faith When It Doesn't Go to Plan." When the storm hits, persevering faith when it doesn't go to plan. I don't know about you, but. Uh, I have plans. I make plans. We all do, don't we? We make plans. We like making plans. But when the storm hits, 
It's very rarely, in fact, it's never on your plan. Anyone notice that? You can't mark it in your Google Calendar. Oh, that looks like a good week for a storm. I'll, I'll keep that week clear. It just doesn't work like that. When the storm hits, your plan goes out the window. It changes your plan. You cannot choose what's happening on the outside. The only thing you can choose when the storm hits is what happens on the inside. Because the storm will not fit in with your careful and my caref carefully laid out plans. And so I just want to tell a story from uh, the Apostle Paul, and, and then we'll just draw a few lessons from that. And then I thought it would be great for us to finish this morning just to take communion together and to celebrate one another and to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So the story is from the Apostle Paul. And Paul, um, for those of you who don't know, was one of the earliest Christians, a, a, a man who, was, who hated Christians, that then encountered Jesus himself and comes to faith in Christ, and then literally hits the world like a storm himself. I mean, he was going at it great guns. He was planting churches. He was leading people to faith in Christ through his story and his phenomenal preaching gift. He traveled all around kind of the area, planting churches, establishing. He raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. Just this machine of a believer just going for it, full of faith for what God was going to do. And God had said to Paul, you will preach before kings. You will speak before kings on my behalf. But I don't think Paul quite had probably understood how that was going to come about. I imagine Paul had a plan about how how that was going to happen. I'm not sure that he understood quite what God had in mind because what happens is Paul goes to Jerusalem and gets arrested by the Romans. He was arrested for kind of causing trouble, so they thought, and through one thing and another, he gets sent to Rome to stand before Caesar himself. So there's more than one way to Rome. Paul gets the free ticket paid for by the Roman Empire as a prisoner. So he's sent to Rome in the care of a centurion named Julius. And Julius uh, takes Paul with a few soldiers to kind of look after them on the road. And then Dr. Luke, who actually writes the story for us in Acts 27, records it. Uh, he goes and a few other disciples. So this group go uh, to Rome. And Paul um, is taken then, not by his own choice, but he's taken to Rome with Julius. And, and so what Julius does is he finds a ship that will take them, because they're quite far away, so he finds a ship that will take them. And uh, what the problem is that winter is fast approaching, and the Mediterranean, even today, is incredibly dangerous in the winter storms. It's like a really dangerous place to go. And so Paul says to the centurion, look, I'm, I, I'm a bit worried here. He says, I'm, I'm not, if we go now, I think we should wait till after the winter. If we go now, I'm worried that we'll lose a ship, but not only lose a ship, we'll lose our own lives. Have you ever traveled on a, a, a budget airline and thought to yourself, I'm not sure we're going to make it? It's that, that's the feeling Paul's having. This is like, I'm not sure whether you should do this. But the centurion Julius, who actually comes to really like Paul later, at the point, this point doesn't even know who he is, and says, um, he listens to the ship's captain. The ship's captain says, we don't want to winter in this port anyway. Let's head to this next port. I think we can make it. We'll be all right. We can just about get there in time. So they head off in the ship, um, and, but unfortunately, Paul was right. And so as soon as they get out of the harbor, they get hit by this storm, a raging tyrant of a storm called the Northeaster. And this storm, literally, there is no way they can control it. They literally just get driven by this storm across the Mediterranean. And as they do so, the, now in those days, the only way really to survive the storm, a storm like that, is to make the ship as light as possible, because then it acts like a cork, and it just kind of bobs along the surface, and as long as the thing doesn't fall apart, you're going to survive. So that's what they did. They chuck all the cargo overboard, and, and Luke writes, they even chuck the ship's tackle overboard, which shows how desperate it was, because when, of course, the storm would stop, you need to tackle to direct the ship, but once you've thrown the tackle over, you've got no hope. You literally are like a cork on the open ocean, bobbing 
bobbing around with no control. So they chuck everything overboard to lighten the ship, and then the ship is driven by, by the storm ahead. And Luke writes at this point, he says, it was at this point that all hope of being saved was lost. And that's kind of where they are. Well, this is what he writes then. And I'll read it to you so I just get the words right. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete. It's, it's okay every now and again to say, I told you so. <laughs> you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you, they'll also live. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. Well, that's exactly what happens. So they're driven by the storm for two weeks, this raging storm, they're, they're, they're starving, they can't eat, they're so seasick, but then they spot land and they decide, right, what we'll do, they drop these sea anchors, we'll cut the anchors and we'll just head for land and hopefully we will land on this island. So they head for the island, but the problem was there was a sandbank which they couldn't see, and they run aground on this sandbank. And so they're still quite away from the island. And what the soldiers decide to do, because they were responsible for getting the prisoners to wherever they were going. And so if the prisoners escape or get lost, the soldiers will lose their own lives. So the soldiers draw their own swords and say, right, we're going to swim for it, but we're going to kill all the prisoners first, because just in case some of them use this as an opportunity to escape. Well, Julius, by this time, has realized this guy, Paul, is pretty special so I want to keep him alive so he says to the soldiers we're not going to do that people aren't going to make it they'll either make it or they won't let's all head to the island we'll sort it out then he says basically guys grab some driftwood grab a bit of the ship and just swim for it and we'll regroup on the island so that's what happens they all make it to the island safely I think there were 276 people on board and they all survive the shipwreck they all swim uh, using the bits of the ship and make it to the island now, when they get to the island, they find it was Malta, which is a great time for a holiday, but it was in the middle of winter. So it was pouring with rain, but the islanders were quite friendly. They helped them make a fire to dry out, and Paul is collecting driftwood, and as he does so, there's a snake hidden behind one of these bits of driftwood, and it bites him. And the local villagers see this snake, and they say, this, they know what type of snake, it was a deadly, deadly snake, and they say to themselves, this guy must be a murderer or some kind of psycho because the gods tried to kill him in the storm and he survived that and so now they're going to kill him by a snake. But Paul just snake, shakes the snake off into the fire and, and they wait, look, watch to see if he's going to you know, blow up like a balloon and die, but he doesn't. He's perfectly fine. He survives. Well, then they decide that he is a god and they start to think that he's pretty significant. And there was a, a Roman centurion, there, a Roman um, a dignit kind of in the area. He was the chief of the village and uh, he, uh, he welcomes him into his home. His father-in-law is sick. He's got dysentery and a fever, which often in those days was fatal. Yeah, Paul pray, lays hands on the guy I praise for him and he is totally healed and so then all Malta is not a big place and then it was even smaller in terms of population so everyone brings all of the sick from the island to Paul he prays for them and it says every single sick person on the island was healed all of them all, every single one of them and so that's pretty much the end of this section of the story Paul and Luke then get another ship they're blessed by the islanders who think they're pretty amazing and off they go on their journey to Rome and that's Paul's story What's the, what's the point for us? What can we learn? When the storm hits, how do we keep persevering faith in the midst of things going not to plan? The first thing that stood out, stands out to me is this. 
expectation and determination. This guy, Paul, lived with a phenomenal expectation. I mean, a phenomenal expectation of what God was going to do. He'd seen the dead raised. He was going to preach before a, a Caesar himself, the most powerful man in the known world. He'd planted churches. He had this incredible expectation. But what do you see in this story? Phenomenal determination. The two were combined together. Expectation and amazing determination. You know, when... I, I, I real, when I looked at that and I realized, you think, how does he carry these two things together? And I think it comes down to this, this statement. This is what he says. For last night, an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood next to me. An angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood next to me. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm gonna, if an angel appeared next to me, I think I'd be all right as well. You know? if, if an angel appeared next to me when I was in trouble, I think I'd be all right. But you know what? I don't think Paul's focus was on the angel. I think he had many other situations, actually, when an angel didn't appear. I don't think his focus was on the angel. I think his focus was on the God who sent the angel. Because that's what he says. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Expectation and determination comes from this place. This sense of identity and purpose comes from who you belong to. That's what holds you together. That's what keeps us, well, the ship of your life together through the storm. It's recognizing that in no matter what the world, what life, whatever throws at you, expectation and determination are sourced in the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. I'm on his mission. I've got purpose, but more than that, I belong to him. I belong to him. You can throw whatever you like at me, but I belong to him. I was, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of when my kids were born, and they come out, you know, all pink and wrinkly and screaming. And uh, the first thing the nurses, the midwives do is they put that little bracelet on their hand. You guys remember this moment, those of you who've had kids? They put this little kind of bracelet, and you can't get it off unless you cut it off. And uh, this bracelet goes, and it's almost too big for the, for the baby. It's like this kind of thing, but it's wrapped on tight, so you cannot get this thing off. And, and what's the point? Well, the point is this. Firstly, the, the most important thing is, is this baby healthy? But the second thing is this. Who does this baby belong to? <laughs> there have been too many incidents in hospitals where baby gets swapped around, and so they decided, no, 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 we need to identify who this baby belongs to. It's the first thing that really goes on to that child after the blanket is, who does this baby belong to? And it's the same for us the God to whom I belong. And I don't know about you, but the danger for me as a believer is that you can so often either lose expectation or determination. If you lose expectation, you get through, but really it's under your own resources and you don't really see much of God breaking in in the world around you because you're just getting through through gritting your teeth. It's true grit, but really you've lost your expectation. Or there's some, they've got great expectation, but then when disappointment comes along, they just lose it and just fizzle out. Expectation and determination is what you see in this story. It's the both and, it's a powerful combo. It means that Paul can get shipwrecked, and yet a few moments later, he's praying for the sick and seeing a whole island healed. I mean, instead of like licking his wounds and thinking, forget you guys, I've just been shipwrecked. In fact, this was the third shipwreck he'd been through. Instead of that, he says, do you know what? expectation, determination, I'm, doing, I'm going after both. <laughs> I'm expecting great things of God, but even when it doesn't go to plan, I'm going to keep going. I've got determination. Both go together. You see it 
In Job, you know, the man whose family was killed, he's lost his possessions, he gets really sick, and he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know who I belong to. You see it in the Psalm, Psalm 27, I remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know who I belong to. I know who the God to whom I belong. I, it's that psalm of, uh, a song of songs bit, isn't it? I am my beloved's and he is mine. At the end of the day, that's what it all focuses down to. I am my beloved's and he is mine. I belong to him and I'm serving him and I'm on his mission. I'm not on my own in this thing. Thomas Merton, the renowned Catholic priest, said this, Who am I? I am the one loved by Christ. This is the foundation of the true self. It's the same thing. Who am I? I'm the one loved by Christ. This is the foundation of the true self. You know, Caroline um, saw Zoe after she'd been diagnosed with, with cancer and after she'd heard that it wasn't months she had to live, but actually weeks and actually it was even less than that. And um, this, is, this is what happened. I asked Caroline to, to write it down to me. Zoe said this, The doctor asked me how I'm feeling about dying. I think they thought I'd be afraid. I'm actually kind of excited I've been singing all these years about seeing Jesus face to face and being in heaven where there's no more pain and no more sickness. So I guess for me it's a win-win. Either Jesus is going to heal me miraculously or I get to be with him. I know it's heartbreaking for the people left behind, but for me it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? It comes down to that. The second thing is, is this that stands out to me is how God sends his help. One minute, Paul has got an angel standing at the foot of the bed, and the next minute, he's hanging on to a bit of driftwood and swimming with everyone else for the shore. And, and it's both and. And, and. and I think the thinking for me, what we have to think on the inside, wherever you go, there you are, as a man thinks, so he is. What we have to think and realize is the kingdom of God is both supernatural and natural. And God uses both. And sometimes we can get so focused on the supernatural deliverance that we miss the bit of driftwood that God sent for us to hang on to so that we can make it to the shore. When the storm hits, we've got to remember these things. Grieving takes time. It takes space. It means being in community. It means being in family. It means taking extra time to eat and eating more food. Who likes that? It means just being together. That's how grieving works. It means writing. It means walking. It means processing. It's all very, very natural. Yet in the midst of that, we see supernatural stuff, supernatural provision, supernatural peace, supernatural grace, all of these things, even supernatural healing, even in the midst of it. You know, last year, when I was sick, we're in this massive um, uh, housing disaster thing that was going on. Two things stand out to me. Firstly, the supernatural provision of finance. I mean, we had gifts and money and finance coming from all. I mean, it was just amazing, the provision. Super, it was supernatural. What was robbed from us by, by this guy, we had more than double restored to us, and we needed more than we thought we had in the, needed in the first place, which was good. Uh, so we got more than double restored to us. It was, for not, it was supernatural. But also, what stands out to me is the natural, the texts that came just at the right moment, the bunch of flowers left on the doorstep, the, the, the people helping us tirelessly sort our house out, just very natural, very practical, very day-to-day, but those were the things that stood out to me as well. And the mill rotors. I mean, who, who's had a mill rotor? I mean, just phenomenal. Yeah. 
when you're struggling and you get a meal turned up free, good quality food delivered with love and care. I mean, it's just you can't beat it. In fact, by the end of it, when the last one off the rotor goes, you're like, is that it? We've we got to cook for ourselves again. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's only been a month. You know, I'm, I've got a nasty cough coming on. <laughs> I stubbed my toe. You know, <laughs> it's that thing. It's so amazing. You're like, no, I don't want this. This is how life should always be. <laughs> But that's the reality, isn't it? It's the supernatural and the natural. And both together are the kingdom of God. And God's in them both. And it's in the end, we either trust him or we don't trust him. And if our focus is so on, God, you've got to deliver me through this big thing, then so often we can miss that bit of driftwood that comes along that we can cling into and swim to the shore. And Paul sees it both in this story, doesn't he? He's got the angel at the foot of the bed, and he's got a bit of driftwood. And both were part of his rescue and both were part of his salvation. And it's true for, what was true for him is also true for us. And then in the last, the last thing is this. In these few uh, verses, we see Paul experience great breakthrough. You know, a whole island healed, the most significant dignitary on the island, his father-in-law healed, huge favor from the people, incredible breakthrough that he's seen and he saw in his life, and yet incredible suffering you know, his shipwreck. In fact, this was the third shipwreck he'd been on. I mean, you can imagine Paul thinking, God, you sent me on this mission in the first place. I could understand opposition from men, but uh, hello, you could have just stopped the wind for a bit. <laughs> you know, shipwreck, you know, natural disasters I was not expecting. Surely, God, you could just have waited a few weeks, and I'd have got across, and then, you know, I know storms have got to happen, but, but actually, he's not thinking like that. He made a massive breakthrough, and yet massive suffering. He gets bitten by a snake. I mean, even he was thinking, what the? <laughs> I just got out of the sea. Give me a break. A massive breakthrough and yet incredible suffering all at the same time. You know, we saw that in Zoe. Two of the most significant healing miracles I've seen in the last couple of months were at Zoe's hands. One was a guy at a conference who was uh, born with hearing, I think you saw the video a couple of weeks ago, he's born with uh, hearing loss in both ears, double hearing aids. Zoe prays for him, his hearing is restored, takes the hearing aids off and says, I, think, I don't think I need these anymore. And another was um, from we were in Turkey, and we were there, and uh, through one thing and another, Zoe and, uh, and Chris Keating, who were together, had arrived earlier at this meal we were going to go to, and through one thing and another, they end up at the wrong house. And so when we arrived, the people, person we were going to have dinner with says, we've just got to go next door, because your other team members are at the wrong house. They've gone next, next door. So we're like, Strange. Okay, not you know. What, there was a whole story behind it. Anyway, we end up next door, and we walk into the lounge, and there's Zoe and Chris sitting on the sofa with this elderly couple. You know, biscuits, drinks, having a good old laugh. You know, enjoying the company. That was a, that was classic Zoe. You know, she suddenly kind of we've moved the dinner party next door, having a good old time. And then Zoe says, "Well, this lady, you know, she's we found out that she's been sick for ten years, and she's got um, uh, arthritis in her back, chronic pain for ten years. We should pray for her as a team." So led by Zoe, we all decide we're going to pray through her for her with translation. And as we're praying for her, the woman walks out of the room. She just turns around, walks out, and I didn't know where she'd gone, but then we find out later she'd gone up and downstairs because she wanted to check out had she been healed. She then comes back in and says, yeah, I'm completely pain-free and uh, got, you know. And, so, and then a few few months after that, not even six weeks after that, Zoe herself gets sick and then dies from, from a sickness. I mean, there is a mystery there, guys. There is a mystery there. 
But I think the mystery is this, it's breakthrough and it's suffering, and they both go together. You know, Jesus taught this, didn't he? He said, the kingdom of God has arrived, Luke 11, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, he said, but also that it's yet to come, Luke 21. So when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. Everyone's got to resolve that tension somehow. At at King's Arms, we believe and we teach what's called inaugurated eschatology. I know it's, uh, uh, that sounds painful. It sounds like you know, a condition you've got. I was doing all right, but in this bad weather, my inaugurated eschatology really plays up. Like something you need to get the surgeon to remove. But it's actually quite straightforward. What it, what it means is this, that when Jesus came, he came and he died and he rose again and his kingdom came with him. It was inaugurated, it was established, it began at that point. A little bit like the Allies landing on the beach in Normandy, Normandy in D-Day. When they landed, a beachhead was made. The kingdom of God arrived in force like that at that point. And one day it's going to come in all its fullness. One day it will come and a little bit like VE Day. And VE Day was a day when there was victory in Europe. There was a celebration. There was the parties on the streets. And you see the parties from Trafalgar Square. VE Day, the victory is fully done. and There'll be no more pain and no more suffering. And we believe and look forward to that day. And that's VE Day and that's yet to come. And yet we live in this in-between time. And in the Second World War, there are actually more lives lost between D-Day and V-Day than any other point in the the war up to that point because the enemy fought back with a vengeance. But the reality was victory was already secured. The kingdom had already landed, and it was just a matter of time. It was just going to advance one uh, town, one life at a time through France until there was an ultimate victory. And the kingdom is like that. I believe Paul had the same belief. I believe it's a a biblical belief. Millions of Christians across the world hold this view. Inaugurated eschatology. God's kingdom is now and it's not yet. It's both and. It's not either or. And so we see that in Acts 14.22. Paul, on his first missionary journey about a decade before this story, he writes this. It says about him, he says, he continued to encourage the disciples, continuing the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships as we enter the kingdom of God. It's both and. It's not either or. Alexander Venter wrote this uh, quote uh, about kingdom healing, really, but it applies to everything of the kingdom. And, and, And he wrote this, the tension and the mystery of the kingdom is critical to a proper theology and practice of healing. We instinctively try and resolve this tension. We prefer either or because both and is messy. Too much kingdom now leads to arrogance, it leads to presumption, demanding healing as if it's on tap. Too much kingdom then leads to pessimism and fatalism, leaving healing as if it's all God's will. We too easily explain the lack, the healing, lack of healing by kingdom tension when we ought to push through in faith. But embracing the both the already and the not yet of the kingdom makes us living paradoxes. It is learning to live and minister in the overlapping of two ages. The power of the kingdom, the resistance of this age, it leads to persevering faith, optimistic realism, dependence on God, discerning the moment, honoring people's dignity, respecting the unknown, and leaving the results with God. Such a strong coat. Let me just read that last line again. It leads to persevering faith, optimistic realism, dependence on God, discerning the moment, honoring people's dignity, respecting the unknown, and leaving the results with God. All of the early stories of the church have this mixture, breakthrough and suffering, 
going together, kingdom now and kingdom not yet, living together in tension. You know, these three things, expectation and determination, natural and supernatural, breakthrough and suffering, I believe these are the thinking, these are the thought processes that we've got to have if we're to persevere in our faith when the storm hits. If we solidify our thinking at this time, you know, as a man thinks, so he is. That reality will come out when the storm hits. What you think now, whether you're in a storm now or whether you will be in a storm now, what you think now is critical for the storms that will come in life. I just want to finish with this, this story and then we'll take communion. You know, there was a guy called Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries out of the UK. He was a missionary who went to China and began what was a move that led millions upon millions of Chinese to come to faith in Christ. A phenomenal guy. What was different about him was he lived like the Chinese. He dressed like the Chinese. And what was also different was instead of sending his kids off to boarding school, he took his kids with him on mission. It was kind of unheard of in those days. He was a real family man. He loved his family. And he had a particular, one of his kids he particularly loved was little Gracie. And Grace, there's this story of when he and Grace went for a walk one day, and she was six or seven years old. And they went for a walk, and um, as they're walking, they saw a man, uh, a Buddhist, who was making an idol. And um, Grace said, what's he making that idol for? Is it, is it because he wants to worship that idol instead of our God? And, um, and Hudson Taylor said, yeah, Grace, that is what he's doing. And, and Grace said, well, Daddy, you must tell him about Jesus. He would not make an, ug- an ugly idol like that if he knows Jesus. You must tell him about Jesus. So Hudson Taylor stops and um, begins to uh, tell the guy about Jesus and talk to him about Jesus, and, but the man really wasn't interested. So they carried on their walk, and they stopped a few hundred yards away under a tree just for a bit of shade because it was so hot. And when they um, stopped under the tree, Hudson Taylor said to Grace, he said, well, let's sing, sing a hymn. What shall we sing? She said, oh, my favorite is Rock of Ages. Cleft to me. Let's sing Rock of Ages. So they sang uh, Rock of Ages. And then he said, um, he said, Grace, why don't you say a prayer? Why don't you say a prayer? And then this is what he wrote in his journal. She did so, and never have I heard such a prayer. She had seen the man making an idol. Her heart was full, and she was talking to God on his behalf. The dear child went on and on under the tree, pleading with God that he would have mercy on the Chinese, would strengthen strengthen me, her father, to preach to them. I was never so moved by any prayer. My heart was bowed before God. Words fail to describe it. (laughs) She was a phenomenal young lady. And yet... Not within, I think it was within a year's time, Grace had conjunctured what they think now was meningitis and she died. And Hudson Taylor buried Grace. And this is what he said, looking back on it. It will be a strange thing to meet the one whose fingers will wipe away every tear, but have no tears to wipe away. <laughs> the lesson he drew from this was that he didn't understand it but that one day he was going to meet the one who wiped away every tears, and he was going to have some tears to wipe away. Interestingly, the biographers looking back say Grace's death was the thing that saved Hudson Taylor's mission, because up until then, the other missionaries were fighting against each other. The Chinese were cynical about him, but when they saw Hudson Taylor grieve and bury his own child on Chinese soil, they knew this guy was in it for good. They knew that he was serious about this, and it was this thing, they reckon, that was the turning point of the mission and that led millions of people to ultimately come to faith in Christ. Expectation, determination, natural and supernatural, 
breakthrough and suffering. These things go together. God has called us as a community to take Zoe Joy's legacy, to take her love for the poor, to take her love for the lost, to take her love for the broken, to take her love for the community, build on it and take it to a whole nother level. That's who we are. Things don't change. We grieve, we grieve her loss, but we keep going, doing the same thing that she kept going with all her life.